Hello listeners and welcome to the Afri Wetu podcast where we look to celebrate African history by telling our story. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the third episode, so I'm very excited as we start to actually share our stories with you. Our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Please remember to go to our Twitter handle, at Afriwetu, as we shall be posting interesting facts, stories, and links for further study for all you lovely people. Our first civilization up for you is the Mapungumbwe Kingdom. Mapungungwe is spelled M-A-P-U-N-G-U-B-W-E. I chose it as it holds a special place in Southern African history, which I shall come to later in the show. But for now, sit back and enjoy. The Mapungungwe Kingdom was very active in the 13th century AD, between AD 1200 and AD 1300, for roughly 80 years. The kingdom is considered one of Southern Africa's first larger scale states. This is in terms of the fact of how it operated in relation to its governance systems, political setup, and how it managed its society on a wider scale than others in the same region. Prior to the establishment of the kingdom, the area surrounding it was an Iron Age settlement. Iron Age, if you remember from the second episode, 10,000 BC to AD 650, which is also 11th century BC to the 7th century AD. And these people were the most likely ancestors to the Shona peoples of today in Zimbabwe and Southern Africa. Archaeological radiocarbon dating has shown that the first buildings at the base of the hill were built at the beginning of the 11th century AD and the area continued to flourish until the 13th century AD. The kingdom's ancient capital city, Mapumbungwe Hill, was located where the Limpopo River and the Shashe River meet. This capital was one of three capitals that were inhabited at differing times by the Shona people the other two being Zhizhou and Ketu. Zhizhou being spelled Z-H-I-Z-O and Ketu spelled, you know, K2. The capital at Mapumbungwe Hill was the largest and the wealthiest. And there are actually various claims as to what the name actually translates to. The one that seems to be the most accepted is Hill of the Jackals. So, in general, the total population of Mapumbungwe at its peak in the mid-13th century AD was around 5,000 people, and it was a really flourishing society. This civilization was class-based, and your class determined where you lived. So there is evidence of this class distinction being made through wealth and social standing. So the structure was such that the elite and the royals lived at the top of the hill, and the rest of society at the base. It's estimated that the kingdom probably covered around the same ground as the Zulu kingdom, which is circa 30,000 uh, kilometers square. 
So when it comes to commerce, Mapubungo is a state that was at the forefront of globalization. It was trading and dealing with the powers and traders from India, China, all the way in the Asian continent, as well as the Arab world. Please keep in mind where Limpopo Shashe is and Mapubungo is, because we're talking about South, Southern Africa, so right in the heart of Africa, trading all the way across with Chinese, Indians, as well as Arabs. So the kingdom itself prospered mainly from its trade in ivory and gold. The gold trade was that that came through the coastal city of Kosala from southwest Zimbabwe. And these were the two contributors to the wealth of the kingdom. The other goods that were traded included iron, copper, wood, shells and beads. And as the kingdom had very many wealthy farmers, especially in cattle, they also traded in livestock. The location itself lent to the Mapumbungwe people capitalizing on trade, being as close as it was to the Limpopo River, which flows into the Indian Ocean, the trading post for most Central and Southern African civilizations, as you shall see as we go along with this podcast. So in terms of governance, the king's role was an absolute monarch. He was the wealthiest individual in the society, owning more livestock and precious materials, which were acquired via trade more than anybody else. He and his advisors were the decision-making body in the state. In addition to this temporal role, and as with all monarchs then and today, it was also considered a spiritual role. So in this instance, the king was also seen as a rainmaker. The importance of this linkage is seen due to the fact that the land was a dry landscape and there was a constant necessity for rain, which was in turn linked to how pleased or displeased the gods were with the ruler and the people. So this actually leads us nicely into some of the causes for the demise of the kingdom itself. So the kingdom began to collapse from around the end of the 13th century. Considering the demise, there are no clear answers, but a few possibilities which I will share with you. Um, One was linked to this rainmaker role, that the land dried up and the lack of rain meant that an impact on cattle grazing and crop failure. As this happened, it is believed that the people then lost faith in their king to fulfill his duty as a rainmaker. Another possibility is that with the trading routes changing, where sites like Great Zimbabwe were sprouting up further north, creating a north-east route, it meant effectively that the route bypassed the kingdom itself. And one thing to note is that Great Zimbabwe was indeed the kingdom's successor as a great trading kingdom. Yet another probable cause is that, quite simply, the local resources were exhausted. So what is clear is that as a result of all of the above happening, because all did happen, is what eventually led to political instability, a loss of wealth, and ergo collapse. If you recall, I did say that this kingdom has a special place in the Southern African history, so we're going to talk about its importance. So to start with, I would encourage listeners to read the article by John Giblin in September 16th, 2016, titled... Meet the 800-year-old golden rhinoceros that challenged apartheid South Africa. That heading says it all, right? Um, I will put a link to, to that article on the Twitter page. So the golden rhino and other gold artifacts were recovered in 1934 from a royal grave at the site of Mapumbungwe. 
I will share a picture of the golden rhino as well on our Twitter handle. Um, the artifact has very powerful symbolism. And despite it being small enough to be held in the palm of your hand, it was created in the 13th century and it bears witness to a wealthy, powerful and sophisticated kingdom that predates by centuries European settlement. This then presented, and I will quote directly from John Giblin's article, a challenge to the colonial and apartheid ideologies that supposedly justified European settlement and white rule. And to quote again, as I genuinely can't think of a better way to say this, and the emphasis is mine, this included the historical construction that South Africa was not populated when Europeans began to settle there in the 16th century. Guys, let that sink in for just a moment before I continue. And I will continue with the quote. And that black South Africans only arrived at the same time and only occupied a relatively small area of the country, leaving the remainder ripe for white settlement and ownership. John Giblin goes on to point out, by contrast, the pre-colonial sculptures demonstrated that black South Africans had occupied the region for at least 1,000 years before the arrival of Europeans. Therefore, this artifact captures the essence of why Mapumbungwe was a key kingdom, as it directly challenged the rationale for South African apartheid. Now, if everybody can just take a breath and let that sink in, I will come back to this in my summary. In 1999, the gold rhinoceros was designated a national treasure. The ANC appropriated the golden rhinoceros for a new South Africa and held it up as evidence of a Southern African renaissance before the arrival of Europeans. So modern locations. So today, the kingdom of Mapumbungwe it can be found where the, in the Limpopo province on the border between South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Botswana, about 75 kilometers from Messina. Mapumbungwe was declared a World Heritage Site by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. I'm sure none of you could have said that that's what UNESCO meant in July 2003. And it can be visited today as it is found in the National Park of the same name. In summary, just as um, a context, in the 13th century, the other things that were happening when the kingdom was at its heights is Genghis Khan and the Mo Mongol Empire was actually also at its height. So now let's get back to our Mapumbungwe. So what I would like to say is don't get annoyed about the fact that the apartheid government downplayed and effectively hid the golden rhinoceros and other artifacts that proved conclusively that there were settlements and kingdoms prior to their invasion. One of the pillars of Afriwetu is knowledge of our history. So instead, go investigate your history. It's no use getting upset if you don't act and educate yourself and others around you. 
Take the positive, which is that today we can access our history and we can get to share these with our generation and the next, making sure that such theft and silencing of our stories will never happen again. I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Our next podcast will be released in a couple of weeks. Please go to our Twitter page on at Afriwetu for details of the next podcast. You can also DM any feedback or comments or send an email to afriwetu at gmail.com. Until next time, mubarikiwe. Rimukadi nengo makwamne, gonda na vamwe, gwenda vuna vamwe, gwenda vuna vamwe, gwenda vuna vamwe, kwamne rinda vakuma kudo, nda vakuma kudo, yenda vakuma kudo, yenda vakuma kudo, yenda vakuma kudo.